The field of health law encompasses the laws and public policies that apply to the healthcare system or that affect healthcare delivery. In the United States, some laws affecting healthcare are federal, while others are state based, and relevant policies derive from judge made common law, legislative statutes, and agency made regulations alike. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Aaron Fusey Brown, a professor of law and director of the Center for Law, Health, and Society at Georgia State University and a member of the journal's Perspective Advisory Board. Professor Fusey Brown has co-authored a perspective article about the evolution of health law in the United States as an introduction to the journal's new series on the fundamentals of health law. Professor Fusey Brown, could you give us a sense of the breadth of regulations that fall under the umbrella of health law in the United States, as well as the systems that are affected by these laws? Yes, I'm happy to do so. So the breadth of health law is as broad as the healthcare system itself, which means, of course, that health law is very sprawling. It is fragmented, it is complex, and it is built up over decades and decades of history. So we looked at sort of where the origins of health law started, and it started a lot at the state level through really professional self-governance and at the state level with state common law or judge-made law. But over time, of course, we know that health law has become a much bigger, more federal, national system with lots and lots of federal statutes governing everything from Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, just to name a few of the major health laws that we've seen passed in the past few decades. So why is it useful for physicians to understand the evolution of health law as well as its current applications? So physicians often see themselves as practicing despite law, right? Like law often is seen as a regulatory barrier or just something to get around in terms of patient care and the sort of day-to-day -day clinical decision-making. But I think in some ways, health law is in conversation with the healthcare system. It really shapes the healthcare system. It shapes the way that healthcare is developed and delivered over time. And it means that if a physician or a clinician wants to really be an effective practitioner, in some ways you can't do it in the absence of law. It's against this backdrop or this fabric of law that governs everything from the patient professional relationship all the way up to the ways, obviously, physicians and the healthcare system get paid. So I think it's important to know what the backdrop is, to understand where it came from, to see it not as sort of an impediment, but sort of as the water that we all live in, the air that we breathe. So that makes a health law actually quite relevant to the healthcare system's shape as it is today, in addition to where we're going in the future. So you say in your perspective article that the history of health law can be seen as encompassing four eras, each of which has its own prevailing ethos. So let's start with the first of those approaches, what you call the professional autonomy paradigm. So how did that paradigm emerge and what were the era's defining features? That paradigm emerged really as sort of the early version of health law, emphasizing the professional autonomy of physicians, where really state courts, state legislatures took a hands-off approach, really leaving it up to the profession to govern itself. And so that's why we think of it as the professional autonomy paradigm, because physicians really had a lot of both political and legal clout to determine the scope of their own practice, whether or not someone was licensed and able to practice in a particular jurisdiction whether or not they got hospital privileges, and even the governing quality standards about medical malpractice was all really governed by the standards set by peers. And so that paradigm was really dominant for quite some time, from the 19th century all the way into much of the 20th century. 
And it really shaped the way the United States healthcare system worked in the sense that most law pretty much took a hands-off approach for all of this early history and let physicians govern themselves. So then you say that the following era was defined by a patient's rights paradigm. So what changed during that period and how much of that still exists today? So of course, a professional autonomy paradigm, we still have the vestiges of it. Licensing boards are still governed by peers, for example. But as you know, in the middle of the 20th century, the patient's rights paradigm is sort of this awareness that started to infuse health law with this idea that because of the growing notion of both civil rights as a movement, but also just sort of the relationship of the physician-patient, not as a paternalistic relationship, but one more as two people who can make decisions together, the patient's rights paradigm really started to put more emphasis on the patient's autonomy, not just looking at the physician's autonomy as a professional, but looking at what a patient would want to know. And so at the patient level, this took the form of the legal doctrine of informed consent. And so even though for quite some time there had been a legal requirement to obtain a patient's consent for a medical procedure, it was quite cursory. And really, it was during this sort of mid-20th century that the patient's ability to make an informed decision, meaning to be given all the information that a reasonable patient would want to know to make a decision and really be in a position to participate fully in that decision, that was recognized as an important corollary to professional autonomy is that physicians had to give some respect to the thoughts, beliefs, and views of their own patients. And at the societal level, of course, that took the form more as a civil rights notion of health as, healthcare as a human right. And so the biggest change, of course, was in the 1960s, the passage of the Great Society Health Programs of Medicare and Medicaid, as well as the passage of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which desegregated hospitals which up until the 1960s were allowed to segregate and therefore discriminate on the basis of race. So those were the big sort of societal level changes, but it came out of this similar upswelling of recognizing the civil right importance of healthcare and enshrining whether it was health benefits in the form of Medicare and Medicaid or protections of patients in the form of personal autonomy, non-discrimination. So then getting closer to the present, the third paradigm you outline is the law and economics theory of health law. So could you describe the goals, the prominent policies related to that paradigm, as well as possibly its limitations? Yeah. So in the 1980s, with the rise of managed care, and it was also law and economics's heyday, if we can recall, that wasn't just true of healthcare, that was true of all manner of aspects of the economy. But in healthcare, the way the law and economics view took hold was to really frame and examine the healthcare industry as a market and to see patients, therefore, not as a special type of vulnerable individual, but as a consumer who could use their purchasing power to address concerns like healthcare costs spiraling out of control. So the belief of the law and economics school was that through deregulation, market competition, economic incentives, there are really ways to improve the quality of care, to control costs, improve efficiency, and allow the patients to, again, use their own shopping power, like they do in other aspects of the economy, to push the market in the direction toward better quality and better value. So, of course, that was exemplified in tangible form in the form of managed care. And so we have examples from starting in the 1980s all the way up through the present day, where we see this sort of infusion of 
marketplace concept into healthcare regulation, whether it's the creation of tax subsidized health savings accounts or high deductible health plans, or even the Affordable Care Act's embrace of a managed competition among private health plans on the healthcare marketplaces. So these are all examples of letting the healthcare system operate as a market and using law to kind of guide that market toward a more efficient outcome. Of course, as you mentioned, there are some limitations of that. And the law and economics approach, despite its emphasis on competition, we've seen unprecedented levels of healthcare consolidation during this same era, which has led to, again, more and more rising healthcare costs, which the law and economics approach just really hasn't been able to control as much as maybe it theoretically promised. And then from the patient perspective, we've also seen the downside of making patients bear so much of the cost of their own care because they really aren't in a position to be consumers when their life or their health is on the line or that of a loved family member. So we see that there are limits. And most recently in the pandemic, we saw that there is a limit to sort of seeing everything as this individualistic, individual consumer shopping experience when you can't provide for things like public health outcomes or herd immunity. So seeing everything as an individual at the individual level and also framing everything as a market really kind of can be limiting in the sense that we don't have the ability to respond at a societal level to population challenges, whether it be pandemics or spiraling healthcare costs. And then you write that today, another shift is occurring toward a health justice approach to health law. So what are the guiding principles here and what sort of policies have resulted so far? Guiding principles of a health justice approach, which is really sort of nascent and just emerging now, is a focus on equity, health equity, on solidarity, on distributive justice, kind of a revisit of this concept of the civil rights notions that we saw in the 60s, but really kind of taking a different turn. And that is for moving away from the idea that the amount that any individual pays for healthcare should depend on their ability to pay and their health status, right? That's the, that's the concept that we've been living under, under law and economics, but saying really we all gain as a society if healthcare is viewed as a common good that should be distributed with regard to a person's need instead of their ability to pay. Or that we all do better off as a society, whether it's from a public health perspective or just economically, if everyone has a secure source of healthcare that is equitable. So there is this notion that we've had some blind spots in all of the different paradigms that have come before, that it hasn't really accomplished an equitable healthcare system. We don't have universal coverage, we don't have cost control. So I think the health justice approach tries to hone in on some of the remaining gaps and inequities that are in the healthcare system and try to see if we can use law to move toward a more equitable, just, but also hopefully well-functioning healthcare system because it is not a well-functioning market. And so there are some limits. And so each paradigm responds to the limitations of those that have come before. And so this is to the extent that we can see an emergence of a new school of thought, this would probably be characterized as a health justice approach, but it may be too soon to tell exactly what shape it takes. So finally, as you say, none of the major approaches to health law have been able to control rising healthcare costs, prevent industry consolidation, or ensure equitable universal access to care. So what are the chances that the next generation of health law could meaningfully address these issues? Well, I think politically, of course, it is always difficult to move off of the well-established, entrenched 
laws and systems that we have in place. So it is very difficult. But at the same time, I think that is the big challenge of this new health law paradigm, the challenge of our society moving into the future. I think in the short term, the chances are pretty slim, right? We see even in response to something like an immediate challenge, a global pandemic, there is a limit to how much you can move the whole system to be more sort of population focused or be more equitable on a dime. It's very difficult. It's a huge sprawling healthcare system. The laws that are in place in some ways lock the system in as it is. So I think of this more as an accretive or a slow transition, a slow evolution that maybe, again, that takes the arc of decades sometimes to play out. And on that longer time horizon, I do think that this is the great challenge of our society in healthcare in the next few decades. And I do, I suppose, hold on to some hope that if sort of the compass is pointed in the right direction, at least we'll move incrementally in that direction instead of backwards. Thank you, Professor Fusé Brown.